Corey Shear, thank you so much for coming on the show. Let's get straight into it. That's great. Thanks for how, having me. How did you come to your faith in Christ? Well, it's been, uh, it seems like I'm, I'm doing that every day. <laughs> every morning there's an opportunity to, to step into that, mm-hmm. but more formally grew up in a, in a Christian family, uh, made a decision early, seven years old, to quote-unquote accept Jesus into my heart. And uh, then really through lots of different uh, challenges growing up with a broken family and um, some significant mental health challenges in middle school, being bullied and actually going into uh, a mental health care facility in seventh grade uh, for an extended amount of time. Coming out of that and then moving from Cheyenne, Wyoming to St. Louis, Missouri and starting in a brand new, huge high school context in the suburbs of, of St. Louis, uh, it was really at that point where I was connected with uh, some some good who would become ultimately very, very good friends. And they invited me to a youth group experience. And uh, I really, really had a transformational experience in high school. And that was, I would say, the moment in which I surrendered my life to Christ was during high school. Home, although that was authentic and, and true, there was so much that I hadn't known, so much that I hadn't experienced yet. But the true transformation, the commitment came as a result of, of that experience in high school. And I'm deeply grateful for all of the challenges that led up to that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that moment, it was the watershed moment in high school for me. Mm. Was that kind of when the intellectual understanding or even decision that you made, you know, at seven years old, I mean, you can technically make the decision, but we're not really there. Yeah. And, and just the, the behavior, the commitment, the understanding of, of digging deeper into scripture, the, the one chapter of scripture that was most powerful for me during that season was James one and Mm -hmm. a commitment to memorizing that through accountability in high school. And then, and that's still, that's a chapter that I still recall frequently and, um, about wisdom, about trials, about our true what true religion looks like, and how different that is from organized religion in some instances, yeah. and some of the challenges that go with that. But um, yeah, that that was the intellectual understanding, but also the behavioral commitment. And it was not only my behavior, but it was it changed my whole attitude and outlook on purpose and meaning and and role and all of that. So high school was was pivotal for me. Mm. Uh, is, is James one? Is that when he talks about faith without works? Faith without works. He's talking about on the front end of it, considering it pure joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that mm. the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And going on to even it wrapping up, the, this is pure and undefiled religion that you would give to orphans and widows in their distress. Like I love how, mm. and James being a half brother of Christ, what a front row seat he had. <laughs> yeah. So you know, James is considered, it's basically a New Testament version of the Proverbs. And it's a very powerful five chapter synopsis of what it means to live out the gospel. It's mm. an incredible book. Hmm. Yeah, because yeah, I think there is a misunderstanding with that verse of, of faith without works is dead. And thinking that, that, well, that means that if you're going to be a Christian, you need the works. Mm. But then I think we get a little 
there's some confusion of why you're doing the works, right? Right. Uh, it's not justification. You're not doing it so you can be saved. You're already saved. That's right. But it's a conviction in your heart. It is, and, in and your it's the mind. It is the it's the effect. It's mm. the fruit of. It's the outcome. But it also requires constant tending to and gra- grappling with, mm-hmm. never settling with. I've arrived at the point where I don't need to continue to grapple with it. It's daily. Mm-hmm. It's it's we have to. We are we are instructed to live out and and renew our commitment to living out the gospel daily. Mm-hmm. It is not a one and done and then 40 years later we have a funeral that's about us. It's right. daily. Yeah, somebody I can't, can't remember I heard this but there's something along the lines of we need to hear the gospel every day. Every day. And not just, you know, one time we got it. No, no, no. It's like every day it's like this repeating process of just fully understanding what that meant. And, and what we, that means. And we get to, I mean, it's, you know, his mercies are new every morning. So we, we not only have to, but we get to, and mm. that's the blessing of it. Yes. So how did your behavior change in high school after that? Event? Yeah, I, I think community drove such a huge part of, of my faith journey during that time where I was able to get connected with like-minded individuals who still love to have fun and, and, and joke around as high school kids do, but do it in a way that was safe, do it in a way that was, was responsible. Uh, I never had a curfew in high school. My dad, maybe it's because I was the youngest, but my dad and stepmom were like, you don't have a curfew. The only rule is, is that you better be home in bed before the sun comes up. And then my dad pulled me aside and, and he said, and if you ever break my trust, you will, you will then know what it means to have a curfew. And that word, that, that exhortation to me, that challenge of if you break my trust, it's so interesting as I think back to being introduced to why trust in relationships is so vital. But so much of that began during that season where not only my spiritual trust changed, but also my relational trust with my friends and then even the building of trust with my dad and my stepmom in that high school season and how they did trust me with a lot of things. And I worked very, very diligently to steward that trust. And they modeled to me, maybe more so than what they probably should have extended to me, what it, the how empowering it is to have trust in somebody else, but also the responsibility and the accountability to be trusted. Mm. So, so much of my current journey started during that season as well, even from a business standpoint. Mm. So you mentioned mental health, mm-hmm. um, kind of battling that when you're in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to, can you dive sure. deeper into that? Yeah, you bet. Um, for a couple of decades, I would have said no to that question, mm-hmm. that request. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, yeah, there's personal. a lot of, yeah. lot of shame in that. Uh, but the situation was, I was was overwhelmed with um, stress and anxiety and mental fatigue in the season of my life where my parents were going through a divorce and had split homes and going back and forth and being the intermediate communicator between the two of them, all of the classic things in a, in a divorce. Then coupled with the challenges of, of middle school and being in seventh grade, uh, be, being in a school where I didn't really have a support system that I felt like I could activate. Obviously, the narrative, uh, you know, this was 
this was in the 80s, so uh, the narrative then maybe a, a less of a sensitivity to mental health and less of a sensitivity to providing the network and the support needed. So in a lot of ways, I felt alone during that time and then just really challenged with what I would call nested thoughts were these thoughts I would have them and I would dwell on them and I would I would begin to it would begin to shape even my the way that I thought about myself or the way that I thought about others which it was rooted in anxiety and a lot of insecurity and so as a result of that struggling through it I went to a counselor and uh, there was just a point at which the counselor said it's time for for more help for an in intervention and I went from that counseling office and they drove me 100 miles from Cheyenne to Denver. I didn't even go home to pack my bags. I was 12 years old. They drove me 100 miles south to Denver, checked me into a lockdown facility, and I didn't come home for 90 days. <laughs> and so even that whole process of getting me from there to this, which the place that I went to was incredible, wonderful professionals. They helped me in so many ways, but it was such a dramatic and drastic response. And uh, there were no no concerns of self-harm. There was nothing physical. It was just truly, they didn't know if I had a chemical imbalance. They, it was it was a lot, a lot of it was just a mystery, but I think it was so much just rooted in anxiety and the challenges of mental health. So all that to say, 90 days in that treatment facility, came home uh, and deeply grateful for that time. But it was also for many, many years, I think I hid that from my story. And what I've found over the last several years is it's important to share those parts of our story because that is what allows us to be more empathetic to those who are walking through that. And then to encourage those, um, not necessarily to solve the problem for them, but to encourage them that they're not alone in that struggle and that challenge. And so it was a very challenging season for me, but one that as I look back on my time, it was formative in so many ways. Mm. Do, you, do you feel like you still struggle with similar things today? Uh, to a degree, but not, not nearly what I was experiencing. And yeah. so much of that is I see the value in having a counselor. I see the value in being in community. I see the value in even with my wife, who I've been married to now for almost 25 years of just open dialogue, transparent communication, yeah. letting her know when there are thoughts that I just can't kind of shake and saying, for whatever reason, this thought is, mm. it's just nested. And can I just share that with you? And then that becomes a bit of a pressure release valve for me. So mm. some coping things also, um, running <laughs> has been such a vital part to my mental health yeah. truly and it's been an incredible gift to me it's something where when i get tired and worn down instead of i do take naps and i've gotten better at that but i actually would prefer to go on a run mm. and for me that's that's therapy i can't do naps <laughs> first I, off i can't fall asleep yeah second when i wake up i feel like just worthless the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I've I've narrowed my nap like window. It's twenty two minutes is like a sweet spot. Yeah, and I set my timer. I've, I've actually done that. Yeah, like, just because I my body's like you have to do it. Yes, sometimes you just need to reboot. But yeah, when I know that it's time for a nap, it's it's time. And so <laughs> I've I've welcomed that, even though I I fight against it at times. Sometimes it's better to not off. Yeah, uh, everything you've said really is similar to kind of. Uh, I would say how I'm hard, hardwired. Yeah. Uh, a lot of, I dealt with some bullying when I was younger and 
parents divorced when I was six. Mm. So all these different events, especially um, with uh, a person who is hardwired to already be anxious. And mm. I think that that combination is dangerous. Because mm. when you already have a, a child who's just anxious already and worries about every little tiny thing you can think of, because yes. I did, like every little tiny thing, and I'd go down these rabbit holes and it would, it would become like almost reality yes. because of how clear I could see it. That's and right. I'd convince myself, this is actually true now. And how, absolutely, and that's similar, <laughs> how vivid those fears become. Yes. You know, one of the, one of the <clears throat> ways that fear manifested frequently was with weather mm. of, you know, big thunderstorms. I was and, terrified of tornadoes. Tornadoes and yes. like all the things now, yeah. you know, now I'm like... Let's go, let's go drive. And you know, there may be a funnel. Call As a child, it would, it would like completely obliterate me. Yes. I, I would be so scared. And it was just like a, th- a tornado um, watch. It wasn't right. even a warning. Yes. Oh, heaven forbid if it was a warning. Oh, I'm dying. <laughs> I'm, I'm already dead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we, it's, you know, we have the capacity to really spin up a very vivid narrative that yeah. does, it can become our reality. Yeah. And when we are alone in that, it's that combination oh. of that plus being all alone. Cause then for me as someone who is, I'm an Enneagram one. So in that, <laughs> what's fascinating is that I see things in terms of if it's not complete, if it's not reformed, then it's an injustice. And oftentimes when it's not complete or reformed in the right way, I will turn that shame onto myself. Yep. And then that isolates me. Mm-hmm. And so I retreat. I become alone in my thoughts. Yep. Vivid, active thought process. And that's where I need to go on a run. Mm. Or I need to put my com- my computer down and say, I'm done this yeah. week. You know what's helped me even just recently is just getting in the Word. Yeah. And re- like reading so many verses in there where it basically is saying, what are you worried about? Right. If God is in complete control of everything... Yes. Our worry and anxiety is really doubting, doubting that he actually has a plan that is divine and that is perfect. Right. Right. But for us, I think it comes down to control, too. It does. We want to know. And also it's informed by maybe not being encouraged towards that growing up or in our past or we've not done that ourselves. And so yeah. this is a new this is a new way of thinking about it. Uh but as you know, you know, being a parent, there's all sorts of opportunities. I, I just posted something this morning on LinkedIn about last night, my son, Evan, he came into my room, into the study and he said, hey, what do you think Grampy's dying wish was? It's like, okay, well, let's have a conversation. I mean, what an interesting statement. My dad, uh, his Grampy passed away a few years ago from COVID and it was in November that he began to get sick from COVID and then he passed away tragically three weeks later. And we're still wrestling with that grief. And Evan and and my dad had a special connection. And um, my dad was, had an amazing imagination, loved Disneyland, loved taking the grandkids to Disneyland. My my son, Evan's got this amazing imagination. And so Evan is still obviously processing that. And he said, what is, what do you think Grampy's dying wish was for us? And he said, do you think it was that we would all get a million dollars? Which for a 13-year-old, that's that's completely reasonable mm-hmm. in terms of what is it that maybe we wish for? And then what is it that we would think other people wish for us? And I said, well, 
maybe we could have a conversation about what is our living wish. And I said, I'll share with you my living wish for you. My living wish for you is that you would feel valued and that you would feel loved and that you would feel empowered to be able to to interact with individuals who may be hurting right now, that you would step in and walk alongside them in the way that you do so well. And then my other living wish is that you would know that I'm always going to be for you. So instead of having a conversation around the dying wish, let's have a conversation around that. Mm. And, you know, those are those moments, those conversations as parents, as as friends, as community members, where we have to seize those opportunities to speak truth into people's life. And it doesn't have to be much, but I will not soon forget that conversation for him to say, what was Grampy's dying wish? It's like, I don't know, but I can tell you what my living wish is for you. Mm. So it's been, those are all things that help continue to inform not only how we're serving others and caring for others, but also how we're tending to our own soul yeah. <laughs> and um, being, you know, grappling with the truth of scripture and the gospel and all of the things that are occurring in a crazy world. Those things need to be grappled with consistently. Mm. So after you were, uh, after you made the decision to really follow Christ in high school, did that also include you wanting to become a pastor? No, that didn't come for many, many years. Um, I I went into I went into college. Then several of my friends they pursued a call into ministry and they felt that call. I did not. It was clear at that time that I did not. And so I went into kind of the typical business route. I got connected during my summers in college with an an amazing outdoor adventure company in Colorado called Noah's Ark and was a summer guide for them. So I guided whitewater rafting trips, backpacking trips, rock climbing trips, did that for several summers and then was invited to join their full-time staff right after I graduated college and did that for seven years. Wow. And so we lived in Buena Vista, Colorado for seven years. That was my first kind of professional experience was in that setting, wore a lot of different hats, was in charge of the river program, did some of the business administration work, some of the marketing work. Is that Christian-based? Yeah, it's faith-based. And yep. so then um, did that for many years. My two older kids were born during that season. And then my wife one day said, hey, so just checking because we're 30 now. Are you going to be a raft guide like our entire lives? <laughs> and I said, actually, maybe we should consider moving back to Kansas City closer to your parents and kind of starting again. And she said, that's a really good idea. <laughs> so we did that. We Wait, hold uh, on. Are you getting paid decent to do it or not? To move back to Kansas City? No, no, no. Do the, uh, the raft thing. I mean, it was, you know, it, it was, was all right. It was good raft guide pay and uh, definitely wasn't making millions <laughs> of dollars, but it was such an incredible job. And still very much connected with that organization. In fact, my daughter now is a guide for them. Oh, which is that's really fun. Cool. Wow. But uh, we, we knew that we needed to begin again. We knew that we, uh, we wanted to, we did want to be closer to Jamie's family. We did want her family to experience our kids, yeah. you know, in that. So moved to Kansas City, side unseen, got plugged in with the YMCA of Greater Kansas City, did that for several years, then moved into the higher education space as both a professor and then moved into in, in business administration and then moved over into um, into administration and did that for a couple of years as you well. You say professor? 
Yeah. So, and I, and I still teach, um, I teach business and then I, when I was there initially at Jewel, I oversaw oh, this is at William Jewel. Yeah, I oversaw okay. their nonprofit leadership major and minor, and then also have done some business classes for them. And so did that. And you know, during that season, it was a really intense academic season for me. I worked full time, growing young family, but then also I got my executive MBA from Rockhurst as a, so full time student, full time employee, mm. and then also when I was at Jewel made the decision to get my doctorate. So did my doctorate in three years. It was a it was a very intense season. Wouldn't necessarily recommend that fast of a track, but got it knocked out. Mm. And uh, so that was a really intense season, which for me was was helpful. And in that, I I had some goals about my academic experiences, but it really it surfaced to me ultimately what it is that I'm doing now, which is so much of what I learned in both of those experiences. So then coming out of that, that's when I was attending a a large church in the Northland and um, was invited to come on to staff with them and came on to staff with them, started out in kind of more of a, like a program director type of a role and then moved into um, more of a pastoral role and was ordained and then moved into an executive pastor role most recently. But that lasted until earlier this year and left on great terms, but was feeling a really strong sense to pursue my full-time work, which is the business that I run. And I'd been doing that for a couple of years as I call it, it was a Christmas money business. You know, it's like, well, a couple thousand dollars here, maybe $500 there. We'll add it to the Christmas fund, very much a hobby. But as I, as I continue to do the work and really think about the, the opportunity, but then also what was it was just exciting for me to be able to activate this in more of a business setting. Uh, it became very clear about a year ago that I needed to step into this full time mm. and went into a season of lots of counsel from my trusted advisors, uh, lots of prayer, lots of reflection, uh, lots of just trying to identify things that were like common sense. Does it make sense to do it? And then one of the, there were two things that really put me over the edge to do the work that I do now with Trust Centric full time. The first one was I asked myself the question, what do you want to do? And Hmm. I don't ever recall asking myself that question Hmm. professionally. Like, what do you want to do? And I wonder if maybe what we should... What else are you asking? Yeah, but it's maybe more of this is what I should do. This yeah. is what I have to do. This yeah. is what other people want me to do. Yeah. But I wonder if for people who don't ask themselves that question a lot, yeah. they should ask themselves, like, what do I want to do? What makes sense? How am I wired? What gives me life? What gives me energy? How do I lean in? And that was a really important question. And then the second moment was when my wife, Jamie, said... I would rather you try this full time and fail than not try it at all. Hmm. And it was like, let's go. Where would we be without the wives? <laughs> I would be somewhere in a dark alley hidden in a corner. Probably. I mean, my wife are still doing raft. The raft. <laughs> yes, exactly. But she's, you know, we're absolutely a team and she's yeah. amazing. And she's, she is very much the calm, steady voice for me. Cause I'm, I'm a little bit more like this. But she's preaching in the choir over yeah, here. She's yeah, she's the calm, steady voice. Yeah, there's times where I'm kind of communicating some of the uh, 
uh, concerns and anxieties I have. And she's like, what are you talking about? Right. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's all I need to hear. <laughs> okay. It's like, okay, you yeah. kind of get shook yeah, out you're of it right. a little bit. Uh, that's yeah. not logical. Let's move on. <laughs> so um, how, how long were you a pastor? Uh, I was at I was at the church for um, a, a little over it was almost six years, a little over five years, and great experience. Um, learned so much. Yeah, I I played a lot of roles within the organization. I I brought in you know some business business knowledge and business experience that I think helped with a large church environment. Yeah, um, some fundraising experience, obviously, and then. Public speaking turned into pastoral, you know, teaching and preaching, and that was a, it's a different form of communicating, obviously, but really understanding an expositional framework and and unpacking a particular passage of scripture, and then utilizing that framework in order to communicate that to eight hundred people at yeah. a time, and then doing it multiple times. And understanding that when you are preparing a sermon, you're giving two sermons. You're giving a sermon for the congregation, but then there's another sermon, and it's the sermon that you are actually preaching to yourself. And sometimes <laughs> those sermons are very different, actually. Wow. And so that that was a, a, an invaluable experience. I loved doing that and certainly uh, loved the, the communication opportunities, but more than that, I love the community of people and to be able to work with a great staff. And so all of those things have really helped inform even now the work that I do individually from a speaking or a consulting or a training standpoint. It's those were formative years for me even now, because so much of the work that I do is highly relational. There are conversations that go much deeper than surface level. And so that's that was a really important season for me to understand how to come alongside people in a really helpful way. Because you just said uh, you're doing expository kind of preaching, Uh right? Mm -hmm. But that's not, that's not what everybody does. No. Because I've I've seen, I've heard pastors that kind of um, don't really, it's like they're just doing a TED talk. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like Mm -hmm. if you're up there, it's really should be rooted in scripture and not become some life lesson. Yeah. And I think that there's, Certainly, opportunities for application. Yeah, uh, but that can't be that can't be the starting point. That has yeah. to be more of the supplemental. And there were two things. Number one, expositionally, I just feel like that's the right way to do that. Right, it's fairly clear. But number two, it's the easier way to do it. It's right. It's right. Like you don't need to create all of this brand new content. Right. It's it's literally right there. Yeah. Now, there's the key, though, is to have a good understanding about best practices and unpacking that in the right way. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it can, of course, become very frustrating. Is that called um, hermeneutic? Yeah, and from it, that and and from an expositional standpoint, it's it's really unpacking all of the dimensions around that particular passage versus starting with a topic and trying to kind of cherry yes. pick things into it. It's like yeah. no. Let's understand the true context. Yeah. What does it? What did it mean for the readers back then, or the listeners back then? Yeah. What does it mean for us today as we read it? Mm. And starting there, and then understanding that I'm not the expert in all things this, but I can go deep. I can spend the hours necessary and have a framework that will allow me to unpack it in the best possible way, and then communicate it in a way that is from my own experience. I can mm. do that. 
Hmm. And sometimes people will, they will take things from the message that was not even your intent. It's because they're not listening to you. They're looking at scripture. That's the goal. It's, you are, you are creating an environment where people can go deeper into it. You are narrating on it. It's not about having authority over people to tell them what to do. It's about shining a light in a new way into something that stands on its own. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's like this practical side of that's just the easier way to do it mm-hmm. versus me trying to come up with all of this new content. Yeah. I think uh, uh, I've thought, I've thought about this a lot and, and you know, you could, you could get stressed out when you're presenting, you're preparing for that over your presentation style, right? Am I going to be able to keep people's attention and are there like interesting things I can do to kind of make it exciting? But Shouldn't we be more um, stressed and, and anxious about actually telling the word correctly? Yeah. Because <laughs> if you if you if you just present scripture as is and don't try to add or you know change things, it doesn't matter what your presentation is. Because then at that point you've done your job. That's true, and I I think it's it's the where it becomes helpful is when you can bridge to practical application. Yeah. That's yes. where, yeah. and yes, you can do that in creative and engaging ways. Yeah. That's more stylistic, but that's, that is more of the seasoning of the sermon. It's not the core. Right. So uh, I, I, those are the, those are just some of the things that I learned. Now it's interesting because in my, in my role now, I, I do a lot of keynote speech speaking and, and a lot of and workshops and things like that. And so for me, I still have to be reminded that the core message of what I talk about, which is ultimately around organizational culture and trust, I don't need to deviate from that core topic. There, there's opportunity to, of course, be creative in my presentation. But so even in my time as a, as a on-staff pastor, that is something that I learned a lot about that and, and was very fortunate to to understand the expositional framework a little bit better. Mm. Well, when we come back from our quick break, we're going to talk more about your new company, new adventure, and we're going to talk a lot about trust. That's great. 